Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And this week, while you couldn't look anywhere on Twitter without seeing someone compare the presidential election polling percentages to a poker hand, the best gambling analogy of all might have been in this tweet from Yahoo Sports' Frank Schwab having nothing to do with politics. He tweeted, quote, the best analogy I could come up with for the Bucks signing Antonio Brown was having 20 in blackjack and hitting, trying to get an ace. You might get it, but it's an unnecessary risk when a lot more can go wrong than right, end quote. Uh, that's pretty darn good. Uh, you got anything better, John? Maybe a, a roulette wheel analogy for Justin Turner going back out onto the field after a positive COVID test or a, a three-leg parlay analogy for mailing in your ballot in a swing state? Mm, that's a good question. Um I think if Turner is the only positive test out there among the Dodgers and he's showing no symptoms, if he had limited interaction with teammates, if that's all true, then he bet like a lot of teammates health and their extended families and stadium and Fox TV employees really more by betting on black or red. Uh, it's a lot okay. better than signing Antonio Brown for sure, but there's way less upside here too. You know, if Brown's an ace, the Bucks could win the Super Bowl. If Turner bet red and he got it, then nobody in 30 years will ask, wait, how come this one guy in the World Series team photo was wearing a mask? Which uh, he w- wasn't, of course. Uh, so it's really, really selfish and stupid, but social media pretty much has him guaranteed to wipe out more people than a hockey mask Jason in the new movie, Friday the 13th, 2020. Why do people see me now and just shrug? It figures, and they don't even bother running away. Uh, that's just a working title, though. They may have to tighten up a bit. <laughs> T- kind of taking the, the Turner side a little bit, or, or at least taking a neutral side on it. That that qualifies as a hot take uh, these days, because uh, you're, you're right. <laughs> Everybody uh, on social media is anti-Justin Turner right now. Well, I'm anti-Justin Turner, too, but <laughs> right. the, the odds <laughs> less, of, less the so odds than the anybody rest. else getting it from what he did for a brief time is not very good. And of course, if they do with any luck, they'll get through it. I mean, it's very reckless, but you know, uh, I hate to compare it to a drunk driver, but if a guy, a drunk driver is a quarter mile away when he gets in, he's probably going to make it home safely. He shouldn't get in the car. Obviously he should be arrested if they catch him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But he's probably going to make it home safe. That's a, that's an, a pretty decent analogy. Although uh, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not feeling great about Justin Turner's wife's chances who he was kissing on the lips uh, during the post game game celebration, but I guess maybe they were going to be in close contact or already had been anyway. But uh, I, I, I still think the, uh, the hitting on 20 analogy is perfect. Other than the fact I'd say the Bucks are sitting on a 19, not a 20. If the Chiefs had gotten Antonio Brown, that's hitting on a 20 to me. Uh, Of course, I'm just hoping that Antonio Brown takes some targets away from Rob Gronkowski, since my (laughs) mega super duper lock of the year under bet on Gronk's receiving yards is in a little trouble if he stays healthy. So in in that regard, I'm glad Tampa Bay decided to hit on 19 or 20 or whatever they're holding. I I actually think of uh, Brown, uh, taking Brown for the Bucs is an 18, hitting on 18, which is also not a good idea. Right. He's got a little bit of wiggle room there. Okay, there we go. We've adjusted the analogy slightly. Uh, Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 115 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 114 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Not giving us a five-star review is like not tipping your dealer after you get five blackjacks in a row or something like that. Ooh, I like that analogy. There you go. Um, Coming up a little later in the show, I'm going to be joined by the one and only Norman Chad, longtime sports writer, newly minted podcaster, and since 2003, one of the voices of the World Series of Poker on ESPN. We're going to talk to Norman about missing poker in 2020, of course, uh, feuding with fellow Gambleon uh, previous guest Daniel DeGrano, and his thoughts on social media and legal sports betting. But first, it's been a yeah busy week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We 
We spoke at length a few weeks ago about the Barstool Sportsbook launch in Pennsylvania, and we speculated about what state the polarizing brand was coming to next. And now we have our answer. Sort of. The Ameristar Blackhawk Casino in Colorado tweeted on Monday that the Barstool Sportsbook will be launching November 5th, but it was a bit misleading. The brick-and-mortar Barstool-branded book at Ameristar will indeed cut its ribbon next week, but the mobile version is not launching in Colorado yet and is not expected to until 2021. Penn National CEO Jay Snowden said recently that Michigan is the only state he expects Barstool to launch online in before the end of 2020, and that's assuming Michigan online sports betting gets the all-clear to launch this year. So it's kind of a non-story that we're leading with on this week's pod. Apologies for that. But is the fact that people are talking about this at all a sign, John, that Barstool Sportsbook is every bit the big deal that Penn National hoped it would be. Uh, And with 33 available licenses in Colorado, would you expect Barstool to be among the top books there once the mobile sports book goes live? Well, I think not talking about Barstool on a gambling podcast would be like a politics podcast not talking about well, I'm I'm not talking about that, but uh, <laughs> the the brick and mortar launch in Colorado, which doesn't seem to get in the news as an epicenter or a complete dodger of COVID-19 as a state, kind of intrigues me anyway. Um, I think they may get good crowds, possibly too good right off the bat. Uh, the stories don't strike me as political as much as acting tough and throwing caution to the wind, which results in something that feels kind of political. Hmm. Um, so the America Star people better brace themselves or they could be Blackhawk down in a hurry. Sorry for that. Um, <laughs> anyway, as far as being a market leader, I've spent a decent amount of time in Denver and in the West in general. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I mean, Blackhawk could attract every stillie within 100 miles on opening day, but the general culture out there doesn't seem like a match for them. Uh, nearly 20 years ago, I said to Boise, to cover a brief ill-fated attempt by self-star-cross Jason Williams as he joined the CBA's Idaho Stampede, mm. uh, trying a comeback, even though he was on the home team. Uh, being from the Northeast, I expected all sorts of vitriol directed toward a basketball player. After all, it accidentally shot and killed his limousine driver, mm. but it had yet to be punished by the law. Number of booze he got when he entered? Zero. Uh, locals told me, well, you know, lots of people from back east come out there to make a new start in life. That doesn't sound like barstool material to me. Right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, so Colorado, I'm looking at, has all the makings of a market really where Nobody has enormous market share. Uh, I think it'll be harder in that state than most for FanDuel and DraftKings even to totally separate themselves. Uh, And so it'll also be hard for Barstool to separate from the rest of the pack. But, you know, as of now, we have no idea how the hierarchy of handle and revenue is looking because the Department of Revenue in that state does not publish a breakdown of handle by sportsbook. So until that changes, Barstool's success levels are a bit of a moot point, uh, at least publicly and for the media's purposes. We won't know how they're doing unless they publish their own numbers. Uh, Anyway, Barstool will continue to get noticed in every state where they open up. Uh, As you said, you you can't not talk about them. Uh, They get clicks, they get attention. There's certainly no risk of them being one of those generic sounding mobile sports books where they exist, but they're in or around last place and nobody's talking about them. That uh, in in any state that has Barstool, including Colorado, that will not be their destiny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But still, I, I it's funny you mentioned how, how the stats are published. That might be good for them, especially for the first year or so. Yeah. Um, they may not be up there, but no one's going to be able to prove otherwise. Right. There you go. All right. Our second story is also about a brick and mortar opening, and it's a big one. Downtown Las Vegas's first built from the ground up casino to open since 1980 officially welcomed customers on Wednesday as Circa, Derek Stevens's 1.25 million square foot property, had its grand opening. One thing that sets Circa apart Nobody under 21 is allowed on the premises. Parents going to Las Vegas with their kids will have to stay somewhere else. Another headline, Circa boasts the world's largest sports book. Three stories, 1,000-person viewing capacity, uh, to be maximized post-pandemic, a 78-million-pixel screen, and a VEASAN broadcasting studio on the premises. Uh, For those who are into the Vegas pool party thing, which I don't think includes either of the Gamble On hosts, there are six pools on the rooftop and a 135-foot screen for watching sports while you're in the pool. It's all very Vegas, and it's a huge step forward in the reinvention of the downtown area. 
Needless to say, they launched at a bad time for the Vegas hospitality industry. It might be a while before Circa is maximizing its money-making potential. Uh, But John, when you're next in Vegas, whenever that is, what's your excitement level as far as checking out Circa? And does the no kids, no strollers aspect sweeten the deal for you? Yeah, you know, I learned about the pool phenomenon. I visited Vegas about a decade ago. Uh, I was sent there to see what Atlantic City could learn from Vegas's pivot to non-gaming sources of revenue. Uh, millennials were still a thing back then. And, hey, you had a good run, millennials. Don't complain. <laughs> um, and the market research showed they did the same sort of stupid and utterly reckless things from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. The visit I'm doing since at least the 1960s in Las Vegas. But not many wanted to spend the afternoon getting drunk and playing cards, per se. So, But they wanted to get drunk. Right. So enter the pool party as alternative <laughs> entertainment. So instead of making like an average amount of, you know, $97.22 or whatever per day per guest with one guest losing 500 another winning 400 they just collected an equal amount of in pool entry fees from everybody. Uh, brilliant, as the Brits like to say. Um, <laughs> as for the property, it sounds terrific. I understand it has not one but two floors of table games, a rarity, if not unique, in Las Vegas. And a sportsbook that big can accommodate a lot of customers, even with social distancing. So they've got something there. Uh, as for no one under 21 on the grounds, that could appeal to as many people as it repels or more. They just have to avoid one of Revel's famous Atlantic City mistakes of 2012 to 2014, where they were the first casino there to completely ban smoking, yet they didn't shout it from the mountaintops. So they lost smokers, but they didn't gain non-smokers who would have flocked there if only they knew they had a, a unique casino for that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I thought a little bit about, about Revel and sort of some of the different things that they tried that that didn't necessarily pan out. And that's, that's a good point. You just got to get the word out there. Um, Like I might sound like a jerk here, but I've been rolling my eyes at parents who bring little kids to Vegas for years. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you walk the strip with a stroller while half naked women are handing out strip club flyers and you're surrounded by drunks drinking out of giant frozen margarita glasses. It's fine that a place like this exists, but I wouldn't bring my kids there. Uh, or, you know, I've been to Borgata and, and see people pushing strollers as they walk across the smoky casino floor. And I'm definitely judging them when I see that. All of which <laughs> is a long way of saying that I think an adults-only casino makes sense. I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to get away to Vegas and not worry about hearing little kids or seeing little kids or having little kids see them and their antics. Uh, I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. You're right, though. Got to make sure the, the word is out there so that it attracts more people than it repels. Yeah, I think I think Stevens is smart enough, too. I think he's going to do that. But it's 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 so crucial because obviously there's plenty of people who are going to say, what you know, what are you talking about? I love this. My eight and ten year old kids, they, they enjoy going to these casinos. Right. And that's fine. There's there's a hundred other casinos <laughs> exactly. literally in Las Vegas that <laughs> exactly. can cater to you. So if you have an exception, uh, just make sure that uh, the people and there's and you're a part of a pretty big market who would say, wait a minute, there's a casino. I can I, I can avoid all that. I, I want to go there. You'll yeah. even switch loyalties. You might have a, you know, a, a, a loyalty card at another casino. But when you go to Las Vegas, you might say, eh, I'm going to skip that one. I'm going to go to this particular one. So yeah. there's an opportunity there. I just have to take advantage of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the sports book looks magnificent from the pictures I've seen. Uh, so this is something I, I definitely want to check out the next time I'm in Vegas in 2023 or whenever that might happen. <laughs> um, and if I had to hang out at a Vegas pool, uh, probably with my shirt on. I've reached that age where no matter how hard oh, yeah. I try to stay in shape, I definitely oh, yeah. look better with my shirt on. Um, but yeah. uh, if I had to hang out at a Vegas pool, might as well be the one with the 135-foot TV screen for watching sports, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good distraction. You know, people aren't really judging you or looking at you because the screens are so big. Right. Um, the last thing I want to mention is that uh, the last time I was in Vegas, uh, when you were there as well for G2E last year, one of my best friends from college was there at the same time. So we met up and went to downtown Vegas to gamble and, and go to a bar. And boy, it is not the downtown Vegas I remembered from a decade or so earlier. It has been reinvented And it's very cool that there's now a state-of-the-art new casino there. This is terrible timing, of course, for opening, but hopefully Circa can weather a tough year or two and then Vegas will come all the way back. Yeah, I think what's good for Vegas is good for the industry. Uh, You know, they're the bellwether. And uh, I think just uh, any kind of uh, good, refreshing news from out there is good for the industry in, in general. Yeah. All right. Our third and final story is a bad beat story. Uh, We don't cover these as news items very often, but this one is unique as it's a DFS bad beat that costs someone almost a million bucks. 
after he believed the contest was over. Uh, Rob Hunts had what looked like the winning lineup in the DraftKings Monday Night Football single game showdown contest, where entrants drafted six players from the Rams-Bears game. When the game ended, Hunts was all alone in first place, winning a million dollars. But then came an official change of a scoring decision by the NFL. Late in the game, the Bears defense was credited with a sack of Rams quarterback Jared Goff. Hunts had the Bears defense, uh, and Goff actually, in his lineup. After it was over, the NFL stats crew went back and decided the play was a designed run by Goff, so there was no sack credited, just a running play tackled for a loss. Hunts, uh, who plays on DraftKings under the name Robocles, lost one fantasy point that he'd gotten for the sack by the Bears D, plus Goff lost a few tenths of a point for the negative rushing yards, and that was enough to drop Hunts from first place to sixth place, and in a tournament with payouts this top-heavy, he went from a million dollars to just over $3,000. So it was a $997,000 bad beat. Uh, John, I don't even really have a question for you here, other than how much does this suck for Hunts? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that the uh, revised uh, stat was the correct one, but that doesn't really help. I mean, you, like he said, he came back, you know, a few minutes later to like sort of, you know, digest the, his victory. And suddenly that $997,000 was bad. Uh, it was it was gone. It, it's brutal. Yeah. Uh, what kills me, though, is that as far as I can see, he's going to have to completely take this like a man, which he has so far. Right. Uh, but DraftKings, if you're listening and you probably are. Couldn't you throw him a small bone that gets him to like 10,000? I mean, that's feel good publicity on the cheap. Granted, you have to make clear that he really is entitled to nothing, which he's not. But 10 grand, that, that buys a little something nice for him or his family, parents, whatever. Yeah, maybe. I guess it, it sets a questionable precedent uh, that if, if you're just giving away uh, free money on bad beats. But, you know, the sites love to give away free bets and site credit as opposed to actual money money. So maybe there it could go. be like, yeah. hey, we're sure. giving we're going to giving him uh 10 free $20 buy-ins in the, in the next millionaire maker or something like that. Uh, You know, yeah, you're you're right. The DraftKings could be taking advantage of this to get some positive publicity themselves. I'd love to tell you that there is a good beat flip side to this story. Um, And there kind of is, but it's not on the same level as the bad beat because there isn't some lucky dude who won a million bucks on the scoring change, you know, in these single game showdowns, it's a lot harder to have a totally unique lineup. Often the top prize gets chopped and that was the case mm-hmm. here. Five people tied and split first through fifth place money. So it's not mm-hmm. like this guy lost a million bucks. Someone else won a million bucks. It's five mm-hmm. other someone else's won a couple hundred thousand bucks apiece. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting that this happened when it didn't, did because it was a weekend full of football bad beats. Um Not one, but two games across college in the NFL where a running back went into the end zone when he shouldn't, and it cost his team the game. Uh, In the case of Penn State, Indiana, it was made worse by the game coming down to what I thought was a bad call. I thought uh, even if maybe the evidence wasn't enough to reverse it, it did look pretty clear to me that the ball hit the turf before the pile on. Uh, And then the Todd Gurley thing. Tough beat for Atlanta Moneyline betters. Also, it swung some serious DFS contests. You know, Gurley getting the six points for a touchdown by accident. Uh, And then there was the big DK Metcalf touchdown coming back on a penalty, although he wouldn't have gotten that far if not for the hold, probably. Um, But, you know, that changed some DFS outcomes and extended the game and other guys kept racking up points. That's sports betting and and that's fantasy. One lucky or unlucky moment can swing everything. Uh, But... Yeah, it, it's hard to suffer a worse bad beat than one that costs you almost a million dollars, and it's all based on a scoring decision. Yeah, well, all that said, I, I focus on that Falcons result. Um, I was thinking about the Chariots of Fire music when Todd Gurley is in the air, <laughs> realizing that he might tumble into the end zone, because you've always seen that diving, twisting, writhing effort to try to hit the the uh, the yard line to to guarantee a touchdown and he's doing everything to avoid it it's like the the absolute opposite and of course he can't turn his body quite far enough <laughs> yeah. to avoid the touchdown and then inevitably they lost but really if, if you bet on the falcons um you know you kind of you got what you had coming to you <laughs> i suppose but yeah it, it was amazing that he couldn't stop his body there he tried and it just like the <laughs> nose of the ball ended up just barely breaking the plane uh heartbreaking if whether you could say it was not a not a wise bet to back the falcons uh still heartbreaking if you had them but i mean they were trailing by two points so 
like it's not ideal, but they're they're losing the game. Like, oh, you gotta you know go to fourth down and and kick a field goal. What is not 100 percent guarantee True. anymore in the NFL. True. So absolutely, the fact that they went from trailing to leading and they've got like a minute left and the other guy has to go 75 yards in a minute with no timeout. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it wasn't the worst play ever, right. but it's the Falcons. Everybody knew it was going to happen and, and it did. Right. Right. And, and it was just on the heels of what happened with Penn state the day before you <laughs> yeah. just knew the second he accidentally hit the end zone, it felt like, well, uh, I know that, I know that the percentages say that there's like a 75% chance Atlanta still wins this game or something. It felt like it was like 99% certain that Detroit was going to come uh, down and score. Absolutely. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the gamble on interview. There's no World Series of Poker on ESPN this fall, so that means we need to find another way to get our fill of Norman Chad. Norman, of course, has been providing colorful color commentary on WSOP broadcasts for 17 years. He's a longtime sports columnist who's been making NFL picks against the spread in his columns since before it was entirely fashionable. He's an author. He's dabbled in sitcom writing. And now he's coming for our turf. He's a podcaster, the host of Gambling Mad with Norman Chad. He is also trying to make the world a better place, one ukulele dance at a time. Norman Chad, welcome to Gamble On. It's uh, almost a pleasure. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, so it, it's been a tough year for a lot of people, and the poker community, especially the live poker community, has been hit hard. I'm curious how tough this has been on you, Norman, in terms of the lack of poker. How much have you missed playing your mixed games and how much have you missed covering the World Series? Uh, even though nobody really misses the Rio in Las Vegas, uh, particularly the bathroom situation, uh, most of us <laughs> miss the World Series very, very much. Uh, obviously, it's become a part of my life for the last 17 years every summer. So that I miss a lot. And I particularly miss the main event where you meet people from all over the country particularly those who are there for the first time. And it's just a thrill for them to walk in to the Amazon room and uh, make it to the World Series of Poker. So I miss that a lot. Uh, I also miss the mixed games you talked about, playing live a lot. But the, uh, I found uh, a replacement for it. I had never played a line, uh, a hand of online poker uh, mm -hmm. before the pandemic. And I probably wouldn't have played a, a, a hand of poker even during the pandemic, except I, I was invited to a game which involves Zoom. So it, it kept up the social aspect of live poker. And it's actually many, many, many mixed games. It's a 22-game mix, which is delightful. So uh, that actually has filled uh, what has been a really bad year for most of us. It's been a particularly bad year for me on several fronts. And so the poker actually, in its ironically, though it went down, uh, it going down has kept my spirits up because online poker is really uh, that and uh, my new dog have pretty much kept me from... Uh, from doing anything too bad. Yeah, and uh, the, the listeners won't realize, but uh, we can see you uh, right now on Zoom and uh, your new dog, uh, Blue, just entered the, uh, the the picture for a moment there. So he made a little a little cameo on our podcast. Uh, you, uh, you, you talked about missing the World Series of Poker. The follow-up question is the 2021 World Series of Poker, which we hope we won't be missing. Do you have any sense at this point of, of how, how optimistic you are that there will be some sort of in-person WSOP in Vegas next year? Yeah, it, obviously it depends on where we are uh, with, with the, the virus. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Whether or not we have a 2021, and we probably should have some version of it, what happened this year with the live being canceled uh, moved up the calendar very, very much uh, on online poker. Mm -hmm. So the, the online presence we saw this year with 85, 86 events, uh, we, we'd only been doing online at the World Series like once a week the last year or two, so a half a dozen events maybe. There will always be a huge online presence going uh, forward, I believe. And in fact, they might even break it off in the World Series for all I know. They might have a, an online World Series before or after the live thing where they have a dedicated month of 30 or 40 events or more, or they might combine it with the World Series. But yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic we can get back to Las Vegas this summer. But if we don't, obviously online is a, an option that's viable and proved to be uh, pretty, pretty popular this year. Right. 
So, uh, Norman, back in May, you wrote a column that I thought was uh, uh, fairly typical. Uh, it was uh, irreverent and a little snarky. And unfortunately, the WashingtonPost.com headline was uh, why we need less sports in our lives, not more, which uh, caused a bit of a stir, shall we say, on social media. So, um, kind of knowing your personality a little bit, I'm wondering what's the balance between kind of a perverse delight in getting, you know, millions of hits or whatever you got, uh, and then also maybe uh, some, that might be the glee part, but the gloom might be just how stupid people are on social media. Like, what's the what's the ratio for you of how, how that uh, played out for you? Uh, there actually is no ratio, John, other than no glee and all gloom. Uh, <laughs> I take no perverse delight in how something like that plays out. It's happened to me a couple of times before. Hmm. In this case, I was asleep. It was a Sunday morning, and I was asleep into the afternoon, as I often am. As uh, you know, Eric knows that I apparently have very low energy and uh, don't get up in the morning. And uh, my texts were going off left and right, and people told me I was trending number one on Twitter. And I thought, geez, I don't, you know, do I walk in my sleep? And 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 did I rob a series of Seven Elevens up and down the West Coast? I mean, how could I be? I've been asleep. So uh, yes, yeah, so that that column I wrote in which they took a sentence, uh, it wasn't even a very good column, but uh, a sentence in the column talking about the pandemic actually referenced that maybe we'll, you know, we'll learn we need more sports, not more. Uh, that became a, a bad headline in the Washington Post online. And then Clay Travis, uh, one of the true menaces of uh, current society, working out of his uh, bunker, uh, took a screenshot of that headline, sent it out to his 700,000 very enlightened uh, followers on Twitter, and pretty much declared me the dumbest man in America. Uh, now, this would normally worry me because Clay actually says he's the smartest man in America. So when the smartest man in America tells you you're the dumbest man in America, you better look in the mirror and see if you can count to 100. And that started the whole the Twitter fest uh, on me. And it was unfortunate. And like I said, it's all gloom and, and no glee for me because, you know, social media is, you know, Twitter is very toxic. It's very hateful. Uh, most people didn't even read the column. That headline, that sentence that we need more, less sports in America, not more, is a column I have written probably a dozen times in the last 20 years. This was one sentence out of a column which was, as you said, I was being snarky and just making jokes about stuff with sports being down in the pandemic. And the fact of the matter is uh, we probably do need less sports in America. Uh, we need to recalibrate and reprioritize what we're doing. And as it's turned out, and that was, again, that was a horrendous day for me. Uh, I, I wrote a column about it uh, the next week that actually did not get to appear in the Washington Post. Uh, and uh, as it turns out, there's just a Marist College study that was published last week that indicated that during this pandemic time, you know, like 42% of Americans say that they want less sport. You know, they're not going back to sports right now. It's partly because of the pandemic, because of the shutdown, because of, of the, the election season. But yeah, there's been a lot less interest in these sports. And we've seen all the sports ratings have gone down. Uh, because some people just aren't returning to sports right now. And when things get back to normal, they'll probably return to sports. But, yeah, I think we, we really do need to look uh, closely at ourselves and see if our values and priorities have been skewed in regard to how much, how much attention we give to sports starting when you know, kids are eight years old. One thing a lot of people don't understand if they're not in the journalism industry like I've been and you've been is that uh, writers generally don't write their own headlines. Uh, that used to be from the newspaper days where you didn't know how uh, wide across the uh, the story was going to be. You didn't know if it was one headline, subhead and all that. And it made sense. But columnists always have had uh, the right to, uh, for the most part, had the right to write their own headlines. So have you thought of uh, trying to uh, you know, use your clout a little bit and demand to, to get to write your own or is that just more hassle for you? No, that I, I've never thought about that. I, I mean, sometimes there's bad headlines over the years, but I, you know, I've come from a newspaper background. I understand the process. They don't even call them. He By the way, uh, so the online kids don't even call them headlines anymore. They tell me, you know, this guy he writes his own titles, and I go, yeah, I, you know, if I wrote a novel, I might write the own title of my novel. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, a young man to see and see if that sells. Uh, but yeah, I, I, we don't write our own headlines. They don't even call them headlines online. They're titles. Uh, so yeah, I haven't considered that, you know, obviously if I had my own blog, if you're doing, you have your own blog, your own site, you're going to do that. But I've always respected the newspaper process. I used to be a copy editor, unfortunately, uh, a very thankless job. So yeah, I will continue to allow the other people to do that and actually save me when I have facts that are incorrect that they can correct and save me when I have typos and do all the things that editors do other than supposedly just piss on your copy. <laughs> and in a case like this, where the, the headline causes the controversy, you can always point the finger and say, not my fault. I didn't write the headline. 
yeah, you can say not my fault as much as you want, and that's going to get lost in the, uh, <laughs> the electronic lynch mob that is coming after you. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, Twitter, you know, I've always said that the, the internet, you know, it's actually, you know, one step forward and two steps backwards. It's, it's the greatest democratizing tool in the history of, of technology with a small d, yet it's the most dangerous as well. And uh, we have found that out already. We're going to find that out worse in the years to come. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, one beef that you have with uh, Clay Travis, where I have no trouble picking sides in that particular one. Uh, but I want to talk about uh, another beef uh, where it's, I don't want to pick sides because I, I like both of you, your beef with Daniel Negreanu. And uh, I saw that he went so far as to block you on Twitter. Uh, can you give us a, a brief version of what this is all about, uh, where it originated, how far back it goes? And um I'm sure you could have beaten up the skinny kid poker of uh, 15 or 20 years ago, but do you think you picked the wrong time to feud with him now that he's added all this muscle? Yeah, actually, I, you know, I, I could not beat up a Franciscan monk on a 90-day diet. Uh, <laughs> so I couldn't have beat up Daniel back then. I certainly can't beat him up now, you know, all muscled up and stuff. You know, I, I really don't know. You know, it's a one – It's to tell you the truth, uh, Eric, it's a one-sided beef. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I have always gone along with Daniel tremendously. I've, as I've said recently as well, in, in my history of talking about poker, both on ESPN, on podcasts, on sports radio, there's nobody who comes close to Daniel in me giving praise. I, I have lavish praise on him on everything he does from the, his quality of play to his uh, business acumen to the fact that he's understood the whole industry of poker very well and understands how you have to be nice to people at the table. He's just, you know, he has been a poker ambassador forever. Uh, that seemed to turn in the last year in some way. Daniel and I have had, you know, we've agreed on most stuff over the years. When we disagree, as I told him, he's never wrong. Uh, I've lost every argument to him. Uh, we sometimes disagree privately. One of the things we disagreed privately in recent years was his increasing use of F-bombs on his podcast. He'd actually, he would actually uh, promote them on Twitter that you, you want to tune on to my podcast tonight. I'm all liquored up and I, I lay down 100 F-bombs. And I just didn't think that's, you know, one of my pet peeves is the, the coarsening of public dialogue over the last 5, 10, 20 years. And uh, I just don't think it's good for us. So he disagrees with me on that. And then we had this summer, uh, and probably things were deteriorating more than I thought. Uh, we had this summer where he had two meltdowns uh, during the World Series of Poker on live streams, one where his connection was not good. So he went, uh, he went ballistic on his laptop and just he, he seemed to be something not right in the head unless he was doing a WWE thing. And then he had the other meltdown against the guy who said something very inappropriate in his chat. Uh, about his family, about his wife, and he went ballistic again. And so I put out a tweet uh, at that point, tweets, you know, I just went public. I said, you know, there's got to be a better way. Daniel, I, I know you're better than this, and can't we do it a better way? And he was so disgusted by that, he went back on his live stream. Somebody sent me a 30 or 40-something clip where he laid five or six F-bombs on me, including ca calling me a dumb F, and I didn't respond to that. So that led us to more recently again where we, him and Doug Polk are in their grudge match that they're going to start heads up in November. And they've been doing negotiations on Twitter forever. And some people find it very entertaining and some people find it very annoying. And of course, they've both been prickly towards each other. And I made a couple of jokes about the negotiations, very benign, very typical of me, uh, not, not, not singling out either one of them, uh, just making fun of the fact that they're doing these negotiations. And he took offense to that. We had a very quick back and forth on Twitter that day and bang, he blocked me. And that was that, that allowed me, uh, to do three or four more jokes after that about him blocking me, which I greatly enjoyed. And I, I left it and that was it. And that's yeah. where we stand. And you know, there's a I told my wife when I saw the, uh, I showed her the video where he laid five or six F bombs on me on his live stream. And I told her, you know, I might be in the poker industry till to the day I die. I might be out of it in the next week, but either way, there's a possibility. I never talked to Daniel again. Uh, that, that was, that really hurt. That, that was really, that really got under my skin in a way that no one ever has before. Mm. And uh, it was it was hurtful, and I don't think he's going to be apologizing for it. That's our beef. Mm. Uh, <laughs> is it possible, Norman, that with Daniel being uh, recently married, uh, that that marriage is affecting him uh, not for the better? That would be a, a question that is sort of an area of expertise for you, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I've had a, a million people uh, email and text me with theories of Daniel's summer rage, and I, you know, I'm in therapy. Uh, but I am not a therapist. I have no idea what is the, the cause of the rage. There has been a change. There is even a thought that 
that that his new sponsor wanted him, his new relationship with Gigi Poker wanted him to be more WWE and be more outrageous and be out there and, and all that. I have no idea. I think it's a bad look, as I, I said in the, the tweets. Whatever he's doing, uh, it's it's a bad look for him. I think it's a bad look for the game. I think it's a bad look for his sponsor. I think it's a bad look for the whole industry. And just I just think it's wrong anyway to act that way, to threaten somebody physically and say that you're going to bust their face and take their teeth and shove it up their backside. I just don't think that's the way to go uh, with the future of America. Uh, and I know he's an American now. So, yeah, I can't, I can't speculate to why Daniel's gone this way. And he will tell you that I'm the biggest prick in the world. And he, he definitely is unhappy with me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why he's gone this way, but I think it's very unfortunate. Uh, so, Norman, uh, Eric and I have decided that the uh, May 2018 Supreme Court ruling uh, allowing all states to have basically Las Vegas-style sports betting, uh, I call that a landmark decision a lot when I write. Uh, Eric and I have full-time jobs based on this, so uh, it's pretty landmark for us. But uh, given that, you know, the illegal industry was something like $150 billion or $400 billion, depending on who you listen to, even before this ruling, uh, am, am I overbidding with landmark? Uh, how much has really changed in, in, the, in the culture, the American culture? now that you can legally bet outside of Nevada? Well, I don't want to take any bread off your table, John, and tell you you've overstated the case uh, <laughs> in repeating landmark decision. But actually, you, you are, you know, you've, you've, you've accidentally found the acorn correctly. Uh, this, this is a landmark decision. Uh, you know, in, in American history, as well as the rest of the world, we, we've always, different local communities and nationally, we've always tried to ban three basic needs that people are, are, are just not going to stop doing. And that's simply uh, alcohol, sex, and gambling. And you can, you can take them off the table all you want. People are going to find a way to drink. They're going to find a way to find a prostitute. And they're going <laughs> to find a way to bet. So uh, we, found, you know, we found out during Prohibition, people still drinking. Just all these things are going to happen. So the smart thing always has been to legalize it, regulate it, and tax it. So the Supreme Court now will allow states to do that. We've already seen... Uh, you know, 15 or 20 states have legalized it. In, in, in the next five or six years, we will be up to 30 or 35 states that have legalized sports betting. And this is mostly good and somewhat bad. I mean, we're all in the gambling industry. I started a gambling podcast about this. But with the changing technology, uh, I've always said that, you know, obviously gambling should be legal and we should be really wary uh, of our friends and loved ones who gamble. It's the easy, you know, it's such an easy addiction to hide. Uh, it's harder to hide an alcohol addiction. You can smell the alcohol on your breath. You can't smell the gambling on somebody's breath. And now with the mobile devices and the in-game betting, it, it's a scary thing because you can you can you know you can just be in your your office, your bedroom. You could be in your car. You know, the house could be gone before anybody knows you have a problem. So yes, this is a, a landmark decision. This will allow us more to uh, do what we want to do, but it comes with the caveat that it's it's also besides being again very uh, freeing, it's also very dangerous. Well, you have states like New York that uh, you can't legally make a bet within 100 miles of New York City. Uh, you got to go up to the Catskills to a casino there or north of that. Um, whereas n neighboring New Jersey, of course, gets about 90 percent of its, uh, its, its uh, handle from uh, online. So, you know, which is the better way to go, given the, the inherent dangers of uh, online? Do you think uh, better to be so conservative the way New York's doing it or is New Jersey doing the right thing? No, it's, again, you can be conservative. It's just like banning it. In general, the illegal sports betting was an incredible market, even when you, know, you legally couldn't do it anywhere but Nevada. Uh, they can say you can't do it within 100 miles of New York City. By the way, in, in Washington, D.C., my hometown, which has legal online betting with some pro prohibitions, you can't, you can't bet legally. You can't find an online spot to bet that's legal there. They, they're, they're so screwed up. So it's, it's, it's the other way around. But, yeah, even if you uh, go conservative, uh, I think people are going to find a way to bet with the technology out there. So it's, it's, and by the way, uh, it, it won't co completely get rid of your, your neighborhood bookie. Uh, it's going to hurt the neighborhood bookie to some degree, but the neighborhood bookie still operates in a different way than the, the betting sites and stuff. You can go on credit with the neighborhood bookie. Uh, he can give you a different juice. Uh, you know, you can pay once a month. I mean, there's a lot of ways. And plus there's no, there's absolutely no paper trail with you when you go going with uh, Sal, the neighborhood book. Uh, Sal, come over here. I got <laughs> So yeah, it's not going to kill off the neighborhood bookie. It's generally good for us. But again, I just would put that asterisk that we, we need to be wary of it. Uh, and by the way, so you know, when we lost online poker, it's now going to come back state by state, but very slowly and very painfully. And it'll never be back to where it was before unless there's federal legislation. Gambling, sports betting is a different animal. So that was a landmark decision, John. 
Uh, you can write that as often as you want, and we will have, like I said, 30 or 35 states minimum uh, by the end of this next decade has uh, legalized sports betting. All right. Well, this this has been a pleasure. Maybe not for you, Norman, but at least for us, it has been. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us and, and good luck with the podcast. Hope it goes well. You know, not too well. We don't need you siphoning off our listenership, but we wish you at least moderate success with your podcast. Well, I, I need moderate success. The, my career has come to the point where I'm on your podcast. So uh, I, I need a, it's I a bad need a sign. <laughs> but yes, uh, uh, like I said, almost a pleasure. It's <laughs> Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our shared bankroll. And we had a darn fine week, one of our best in a long while. First off, a winning futures bet came in. I had $50 on the Dodgers at plus 320 to win the World Series. And it was looking bleak when they were down 3-1 to in the NLCS, but we ended up making a $160 profit there. Uh, Last week, John had a nice $100 win on Alabama, covering as 21-point favorites, and he basically broke even with his golf bet as he put $100 on Joaquin Neiman at plus 120 to finish in the top 20, and Neiman ended up in a nine-way tie for 17th through 25th, (laughs) which nets out to a $98 return on the $100 investment. Uh, I made two bets on Boston Scott in the Thursday night football game. I had $110 to win $100 that he'd go over 21 and a half receiving yards that cashed early in the second quarter. Uh, but I also took a small shot at plus 235 odds on five or more receptions. And that one didn't get there costing us $40. Then I had a similarly positive split on my combat sports bets, losing $20 on an MMA long shot, Justin Gaethje by decision at plus 1400, but winning $135 on a $60 bet on boxing underdog, Subriel Matias, who scored a dominant seventh-round TKO over Malik Hawkins. Uh, The only bad news this week is that my NFL futures are looking shaky, including the Gronk bet I mentioned at the top of the show, but we'll address those next week when we're at the midpoint of the season. For now, our total profit this week was $433, so that puts us back in the black by $113. We have $745 on hold in futures bets, and that means we have $9,368 available to bet with, And I'm up first this week, and I'm going to start with not one, not two, but three boxing bets. Uh, But we'll keep them small. The big fight this weekend is a pay-per-view fight at 130 pounds, Gervonta Davis versus Leo Santa Cruz. And the basic stylistic overview is Davis is bigger and he's a puncher. Santa Cruz is the smaller guy moving up in weight, was never a puncher, but throws a high volume of punches, about three times as many punches as Davis. So if Santa Cruz is going to win... Unless Davis is totally drained from making weight, a knockout is highly unlikely. It would be by decision. Santa Cruz is as much as a plus 450 underdog, but I'd rather bet him to win specifically by decision. That's plus 700. So let's put $25 on that to win 175. On the flip side, Davis by KO specifically in the first three rounds is plus 950. Of his 22 knockout wins, 16 have come in the first three rounds. He's dangerous early, so we'll bet $20 to win $190 on that outcome. And lastly, separate fight, British lightweight Lee Selby is priced as a slight plus 105 underdog against George Cambosos on Friday. I would have made him a very slight favorite, so we're getting a little bit of value there. Let's bet $60 to win 63 So in total, we have $105 in action on these three bets in two fights. All right. You know, I've got to love this Ohio State at Penn State football game. Uh, I have two nieces who went to State College, Pennsylvania. Uh, and as the saying goes, they don't know if a football is blown up or stuffed, but they wouldn't miss a home game because it's so fun to be mm. part of that 100,000-plus crush of humanity. Well, this is 2020. No home field advantage on a lonely Saturday night. And Ohio State's on a mission while Penn State has lost a key running back for the season. And they had that gut punch, as you mentioned, against Indiana last week. Mm-hmm. So I lay the 12 points at 112 to win 100. Okay. So it's Ohio State favored by 12 there that we're taking? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I don't think we've done a straight point total over under bet this year. Uh, But we'll do one now because the divisional rivalry game between the Ravens and Steelers feels to me like it's going to be a defensive battle. The line is 46 and a half. 
It won't be any fun to sweat. Uh, never is when you take the under, but let's risk 110 to win 100 on the under. Pittsburgh's excellent defense is allowing 19.7 points per game. Ravens, even better, 17.3 points per game. Three of the last four times these teams have played each other, the total came in under 46.5. And, and the only time of those four that it went over, it needed overtime to get there. It was 23-23 at the end of regulation and finished 26-23. These teams play each other close. Defenses are outstanding this year. This feels like a 24-20 or 23-17 or 20-19, that kind of game. Any of those scores gets us the under. I like that, but you're right. It's no fun to root for it. But right. <laughs> uh, check the final score, and we'll see what happens. Right. Um, so the PGA Tour, which never sleeps, has a dreadful no-name event in Bermuda this week. So I'm going to go back to college football for another Saturday Night Affair. Uh, this time I get 12.5 points with Arkansas at Texas A&M, 110 to win 100. Uh, the Aggies barely beat Vanderbilt in their opener, which, I mean, come on, Vanderbilt uses full-time students to field a team. I mean, you gotta you got to beat them by more than five points. Uh, <laughs> They also got crushed by Alabama, battled past Florida, which was good, and they did beat Mississippi State by 14 points. But Arkansas also has beaten Mississippi State, came close against Auburn. This is a one-score finish either way. So uh, plus 12.5 Arkansas at Texas A&M, 110 to win 100. All right. And we wrap things up with the Fast Five, where my climb back toward respectability continued last week, although John had a winning week also. So I only gained a little bit of ground. John and I had three picks in common. We both won with the Panthers and Cardinals and lost with the Patriots. I won with Green Bay. John won with Pittsburgh. So it came down to our head-to-head where Kansas City got a defensive touchdown and a special teams touchdown against Denver to help me cover by a lot, though I still would have covered by a little without those 14 points. In any case, I posted my second straight four in one week. John went three and two. His record is now 19, 15, and one, and mine is 17 and 18. So we're separated by two and a half games, and you're up first this week, John. Yeah, I guess that Patriots loss for us really threw me for a loop. That was uh, our worst joint uh, game, I think, ever. Yeah, and, pretty bad. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of it. So, meanwhile, you mentioned the Chiefs, who on Sunday actually scored 17 consecutive points without making a first down. <laughs> uh, they enjoyed some garbage time as well. I mean, come on, man. So, the Jets finally covered, by the way, and didn't lose by double digits either to the right. Bills. So give me the Jets plus 19 and a half points. This ain't the SEC. I mean, the Jets may have gotten through the five stages of grief now. I think they're at acceptance. They're still terrible, but they're accepting it. Uh, winless teams, too, tend to have a little bit of spunk at this point in the season. And spunk can land you a backdoor cover. Uh, meanwhile, how about the Bills minus three and a half versus those Patriots? Yeah, I went there. Uh, the Bills play action style is no good for the Patriots defense. And something's wrong with Cam Newton. I, I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong there. Uh, and then the Rams minus three and a half at the Dolphins to close out the AFC East in three games. Uh, I like both teams, but even the Miami bye week and a short week for the Rams uh, and a road game in the East Coast, no less. That defensive line eats Tua in his debut for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I hope he doesn't get hurt, and then I get beat by some Fitzmagic late in the game. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, Raiders plus two and a half at the Browns. Raiders are sneakily competitive, and the Browns know they have no business being five and two with a negative 21 point differential this season. You know, my decades old line about how anytime a so so team can lose a game and still feel good about themselves, they usually do. That applies here. And then finally, I got the Buccaneers minus 10.5 points at the Giants on Monday Night Football. Uh, no fans at the Meadowlands to try and torment Tom Brady, who will not show any mercy toward his Super Bowl tormentors of years ago. You know, the players are all, of those teams are all gone, but the uniforms are the same. And the Giants collapse against the Eagles. I think that crushes their spirit for at least a week. Interesting. So we uh, we almost completely avoided having any of the same games uh, yeah. until toward the end there. Uh, we got one that we have in common. We have no head-to-heads this week. I th- I thought long and hard about the that Jets game and uh, and I would if I was going to take it the Jets I think are the right side but I, I didn't put it in my uh, in my group of games here there there are a few big spreads on the board this week I'm avoiding all of them I'm going with five games that are each within four points um, first I'm taking the Thursday night game the Panthers have been pretty good to me this year. I'm not sure why they're favored by less than three at home against Atlanta, but they are. I'm getting the hook there at minus two and a half. The number is better, actually, at some other books, minus two or even minus one and a half. So I will bet it in real life at those lines. But even at two and a half, I think the Panthers are the right side of this game. Uh, Next, I made myself a promise a couple of weeks ago after I moved to, I think, 0-3 on the season, picking Colts games, not to pick any more Colts games. 
but I have to here uh, at minus two and a half against Detroit. The Lions got their little miracle last week, but boy, they were not able to put up many points against the crappy Atlanta defense. I expect the Indy defense to really keep them in check and hopefully not make me rely on Phillip Rivers too much. Uh, so uh, Colts coming off a bye. I have the hook again at two and a half, so I'll take that. Uh, another two and a half point game, but I'm taking the underdog. This is the one we have in common. Give me the Raiders plus two and a half at Cleveland for a five and two team. The Browns are not very good. They've gotten blown out when facing actual good teams, the Steelers and Ravens. They have two wins against the NFC East and two scary close wins over the Bengals. Their only meaningful win was against the Colts three weeks ago. I think they're a little overvalued and we can buy low on the Raiders here who Everything was wrong for them last week against Tampa. All the COVID distractions, they were coming off their big win over the Chiefs. It was a classic spot to fail, and they failed badly. Uh, and as a result, they're two and a half point underdogs here in a game that would have been more like a pick 'em a week ago. So, like you, I'm taking the Vegas Raiders. Uh, another team I'm going to buy low on, I'll take the Broncos getting three points at home against an overvalued Chargers team. Congrats to the Chargers. They beat the Jags at home. Uh, Justin Herbert is really advanced for a rookie, certainly, but still, they shouldn't be three-point favorites on the road against anyone. So give me the Broncos. And lastly, I wanted to take the Bears at plus four and a half, but they have a lot of players with the questionable injury tag. Just feels too risky. So I'm staying away from that one. Instead, I think I have to take the Steelers plus four against Baltimore feels a point high to me. You know, when I picked the under with our bankroll, I talked about how this should be a close game. These two teams all almost always play each other close. So it just feels to me like an obvious spot to take the points Steelers plus four. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Norman Chad. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, the floor is yours. Please take us out. Yeah, you know, Eric, I know everybody out there rooted for a Game 7 of the World Series on Wednesday night. Well, I mean, except for us, because you had the Dodgers winning the title <laughs> right. in our bankroll. But uh, I also was okay with no Game 7, because to paraphrase this week's guest, Norman Chad, and possibly revive an insane social media war, we need less sports in our lives <laughs> these days, not more. Uh, I just had sensory overload recently, to be honest, and I'm okay being done with baseball as well as basketball and hockey, even though the latter two normally have just gotten started at this point. Uh, I can't wait for the Masters of mid-November. That's going to be great. But that's the last tour event of 2020 as far as I'm concerned. They can play on the weekends as, as much as they like. I'm not going to pay attention. Uh, take this as a good reality check on your gambling habits, too. Ideally, for the next two months or so, basically just stick to weekends and football and Cross a few items off the honeydew list during the week, uh, especially on uh, Tuesday and Wednesdays. Um, you might even get reminded that sweating a bet every night is not the only satisfying way to, well, that's a wrap. <laughs> but uh, until next time, gamble out, everybody, but not every night anymore. <laughs>